text for our sermon this morning is 2 Samuel 11, and the verses that I will read will be up here on the overhead. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war. So the messengers went, came, and told David all that Joab had sent by him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This time we'll call the kids to the front for the children's sermon. The Bible story that we read this morning is a very sad story. And not only is it a sad story, it's also scary. And because it's sad and scary, it is a lesson and a warning to us about how dangerous sin really is. King David, a true child of God, a man who loved God, fell into a very evil sin. Now, sin never starts out big, but it always grows big. And that's the lesson of our sermon today. In the Old Testament times, kings would take their armies out in the spring. Maybe it was to fight battles, maybe it was just to practice and to keep the soldiers always prepared to defend their country. Remember that David had never lost a battle. He must have thought to himself, my army is so good, they don't really need me to be with them. So instead of going out with them, he sent them out and he stayed home. And that was the start of something very bad. 
Your grandpa probably says, idle hands are the devil's workshop. You know what that means? It means that people get into trouble when they're not busy. When you're not busy, you're easily tempted. And that's what happened to David. In the late evening, when his soldiers would have been lying down on the ground to sleep in an uncomfortable camp, David was just getting up from a late afternoon nap. And he decided to go for a walk. And back then, in those days, people's roofs were flat. And they used them like porches. So David went for a walk up on his roof. And while he was up there, he saw the next door neighbor lady. She was very pretty. And David began to have sinful thoughts in his heart. Ooh, she's pretty. I wish I had a pretty wife like her. But David was already married. And so was she. Her husband's name was Uriah. And he was one of David's best soldiers. David sent messengers to her house to get her and to bring her to him. Now, the messengers knew that it was wrong, but he was the king, so they didn't argue. And he made her stay with him in his house like his wife while her husband was out in the battlefield. David's sinful desire became so strong that he decided that he had to have her as his wife, even though he was already married and God's law said that a man must have only one wife. His desire became so strong that he planned a way to get rid of her husband, Uriah. David had Uriah called back from the war, pretending that he wanted to hear news and reports about the army's battles. David wrote a letter to the general commanding him to put Uriah right out in the front where he could easily be killed. And then this way, they could all just pretend that Uriah was killed by the enemy and then David could keep Uriah's wife. Now, why would God's holy book have a story like this in it? It has this story as a warning to us. This story teaches us that we must never, never imagine that any sin is small. David had a man murdered so he could steal his wife. And how did it start? It started from something that seems small. He stayed home to be lazy while his men were busy fighting. And then he let his eye wander to go look through the neighbor's window at the pretty next-door neighbor lady. I want to take it easy, and ooh, she's pretty, turned into all kinds of lies and murder. Sin is never safe. Sin is not like bull riding in the rodeo, like even though it can be dangerous, you can learn to do it and do it usually pretty safely. Sin isn't like that. You can never learn how to do it without getting hurt. Sin will always hurt you and harm you. And you must be very careful not to think, oh, this is just a small sin. One sin always brings another after it. I mean, when you lie to your parents, what usually happens? You end up telling more lies to cover that first one. And sin is always like that. It will grow. It may start out like a little weed, but if you try to hide it and not repent of it, it will soon be like a giant oak tree that can no longer be hidden. I want you to listen carefully to the rest of the sermon because we're going to learn more about these things. After we pray, you can return to your seats. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. O dear Lord, increase our love to thy word which the angels desire to look into, and make our souls pliable and submissive to be turned and ruled by it till we become in all things agreeable to it. Amen. 
Since this sermon series started, I've been chomping at the bit not to get to this chapter. Here we are. Our outline this morning is as follows. Number one, wicked reactions. Number two, why recorded? And number three, warning. Our wicked reactions for our first point. Human depravity reveals itself nowhere more clearly than in its reaction to stories like this. Our hearts love sin so much that they can twist dreadful warnings into entertainment. The risk of physical danger scares us away, but the risk of moral danger draws us in like a magnet. Years ago, this story was made into a film, and instead of portraying the sin as an affront to a holy God, the film glorified the sin. Worse yet, a lust was made into a love story. Worse yet, the film contained a scene of the bathing Bathsheba. That way, not only David, but millions of viewers could experience the sin of lusting for a married woman. It was nothing more than a vehicle for inflaming vile desires, inciting men to fantasize about peeping on their neighbors' wives, sleeping with them, and then getting away with murder. The Bible says the thought of foolishness is sin. And I don't think any of us are sufficiently afraid of what that means. To imagine committing sin is to commit sin. It should scare us that we get excited by the accounts of other men's sin. Men can hardly hear this story without trying to picture the bathing Bathsheba. Instead of being horrified by David's lustful desire, you're excited by it and secretly wish you had seen her too. Our wicked hearts rejoice in other men's sins. That's why we make them into movies. We can turn one man's crime scene into our own crime scene. We entertain the lie that David got away with it. That's a lie, by the way, which is refuted by David's entire subsequent history. But we like that lie because it gives us hope that we can get away with sin too. I struggle even to put into words just how perverse our hearts are. We watch a man pull a grenade pin, and though he suffers third-degree burns on his face, loses an eye, has his right arm blown off, spends years in rehab learning to walk, and can never again speak normally, because he survived the blast, we feel emboldened to go play with grenades. We minimize the suffering because we love sin. Sin isn't like, we told the kids, sin isn't like ski jumping. Potentially dangerous, but capable of being mastered and performed safely. Sin is not merely dangerous. It is deadly, always. No one commits sin and walks away unscathed. There is always spiritual harm. Now, God doesn't change. To say that some sins were okay back then is to say that God's character has changed. No, my friends, neither God's law nor its application have changed. David's sin was as wicked then as, as it would be if you committed it today. We might say that you'd be sinning against more light, but honestly, I'm not sure that that would be an accurate statement because the Ten Commandments were around for about 600 years before David was born, and God has never been unclear about murder, theft, adultery, lying, and lust. And that brings us to our second point. Why recorded? Why is this story in the Bible? Now, to understand that question better, 
We have to keep the ugliness of the sin before our eyes. It's easy to look away. Because the more we consider the details, the more realistic the scene gets, and the more painful it is to look at. This was a horrible sin, and it was aggravated in many ways, and we're going to consider those ways. A, the sin was committed by the king. Let me ask you a question. Which kings are most admired and which are most despised? Don't we admire the ones whose moral conduct was a model for their subjects? And do you know why we admire them? Because that's what kings are supposed to be. That's why the kings we universally despise are the ones who don't behave like kings. The ones who abuse their power and trample on the dignity of their subjects. David has seen Saul deposed because of selfishness and godlessness. Surely that aggravates his sin. B, David has professed great zeal for God's service. And he wasn't faking it. Do you remember David's joy when the ark came to Jerusalem? Remember how eager he was to build God a temple? Remember his zeal against Goliath? The moment David came on the scene, he was striving to set God's worship at the center of the nation's life. Surely that aggravates his sin. See, David was no longer a young man. If he'd have been 21, you might expect some wild oats. That's not an excuse. But still, young men do a lot of stupid and irresponsible things. But we expect men who are married and have kids to, be, to have attained some measure of self-control. And finally, there was Uriah's character and loyalty. Do you know, Scripture contains a few lists of David's elite warriors. These were men who accomplished amazing feats on the battlefield. Men who had been with David when he was being hunted by Saul. These are men who had hazarded their lives for him before he became king. Uriah's name is on those lists. He deserved the highest rewards that a king could offer and could give. He certainly didn't deserve to have his bed defiled and his life taken away. Now here's the $64,000 question. How can we account for David's behavior? The answer is actually quite simple. On the ground of original sin, David was born, like the rest of us, with a sinful nature, with sinful desires that craved unlawful indulgence. When God's grace possesses a man's heart, it doesn't annihilate the sinful tendencies of the heart. Rather, it overcomes them. God's grace brings considerations to bear on the conscience and mind and heart. God's grace inclines and enables one to resist temptation and yield to God's law, and it turns this into a habit of life. Nevertheless, the lusts and the desires of the sinful nature are not completely eradicated or destroyed. Scripture says, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit lusts against the flesh. The Christian who has a natural tendency to sensuality may feel the cravings for sinful gratification even when the general bent of his nature favors fully obeying the will of God. Now in some people, and especially strong personalities, both the old man and the new possess unusual intensity. 
the sinful desires of the old man are held in check by the fiery resolve of the new man. But if this resolve relaxes, the outbursts of the old man will probably be big. And that's what happened in David's case. The law of sin in his members was strong, but the law of grace which inclined him to submit to God's will was stronger and kept him right, usually. David was a strong personality. He never did anything slowly or hesitantly. When he acted, it was full bore. Anything that he did, he did with gusto. Unfortunately, that was true with sin as well. This was an occasion when his otherwise resolute commitment to God's will had waned so that considerations which, have, which would have normally held him in check lost their usual power. Now, everything that I just said was meant to account for the fact, not to excuse it. You see, when we read accounts of good men committing great sins, we're prone to ask, was he really a good man? Because generally speaking, it seems like fair logic to ask, well, if he was a good man, how are so-called good men better than other men? And our reply is, they're better than other men in that the deepest and most intentional desire of their hearts is to do what God requires, to be holy as God is holy. That's their habitual aim, and they're usually successful. If that's not a man's habitual aim, and if he's not usually successful, then of course he cannot be considered a good man. That's Paul's doctrine in Romans 7. Anyone who reads Romans 7 with David's fall in mind can't help but see that Paul is speaking of a believer struggling with the fact of indwelling sin. His habitual attitude is, I see how good God's law is, how it restrains sin, how beautiful the life is that is shaped by it. But he also says, I still feel desires for unlawful gratification. I feel cravings for the pleasures of sin. Paul says, I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Now, how does Paul treat this feeling? Well, he doesn't say, hey, I'm only human. These are desires that have to be gratified. Rather, he abhors the fact and cries for deliverance. He says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And his only hope of deliverance is in his Savior. I thank God, he says, through Jesus Christ our Lord. In David's case, the law of sin in his members prevailed for the time over the law of his mind. And now we begin to see why this frighteningly wicked account is in the Bible, and why it's given in such full detail. It is a beacon warning us of some of the most deceitful and perilous rocks to be found in all the sea of life. And that's our third point, the warning. Now we've seen a few instances when David's character was less than exemplary. We've seen hints of dishonesty. But on the whole, these flaws were, they were a bit like sunspots. They were visible, but they didn't obscure the light of his otherwise bright character. That's not what we encounter here. No, it's not a spot. It's a total eclipse. Though David's reputation would have been brighter had he died after chapter 10, 
the moral of his life would have been incomplete. There was clearly a sensual element to his nature. And had he died before God exposed this evil, we would fail to learn what we should learn from David's life. David himself seems oblivious to the danger. When David lied to Ahimelech the priest at Nob about being on a secret mission from Saul, when David lied to Achish the king of Gath and then lived that lie for a year and four months, little did he realize the monster that he was feeding. This aspect of his character led him to tolerate polygamy. It was no less sinful for David than it would be for you or me. That set the groundwork for gratifying unlawful lust. When evil desires have room to stretch their legs, they do. Instead of being satisfied, they become even greedier. I mean, let's be blunt. Is one wife not enough? One reason God permitted David to engage in polygamy was to prove that polygamy is sinful. If it weren't sinful, why wasn't he content with two wives? Why did he take more? He did so because it was sin. And sin, like fire, never says, I've had enough. It burns until there is nothing left but ashes and devastation. David's life shows us the final effect of pampering the lust of the flesh. Now, if you've ever been inclined to envy David and go, man, I wish I could be like him and just do whatever I wanted, study the last part of David's life and be disabused of that fantasy. See his home robbed of peace, his heart broken by the misconduct of his children. See him chased from Jerusalem by his own son. See him forced into combat against Absalom and hear his anguish when Absalom is killed. See David on his deathbed leaving unresolved blood to Solomon. Scripture says the way of the transgressor is hard. And guess what? That's true even of royal transgressors. Now, a fall this violent doesn't happen overnight. It is preceded by spiritual decline. And in David's case, it isn't hard to find the cause. A, David had enjoyed remarkable prosperity. He was undefeated in battle. His power was acknowledged even by neighboring states. It seemed as if nothing could go wrong. And when everything a man does is successful, it's a short step from concluding that he can do no wrong. How many men have bought into the lie that ordinary rules weren't made for me? His success led him to think of his will as the great directing force within his kingdom. B, absent is the powerful pressure of distress around him, which had formerly driven him so close to God. David no longer felt the need to rely constantly on God. He no longer felt the troubles and anxiety that had made his prayers so earnest. Few, if any of us, are aware of how much influence our surroundings have on our spiritual lives until a great change takes place. And only then do we come to see that the atmosphere of trial and difficulty that oppressed us was really the occasion of our greatest strength and greatest blessings. Thirdly, another cause of David's decline was the fact that he was idle. The text tells us that it was the time when the kings went out to battle. And though his presence would have been a great help to his soldiers, 
He wasn't there. He stayed home. While his men are bedding down for the night in the open field, he's just getting up from a late afternoon nap. The idle man is the one most easily attracted by temptation. William Guild calls idleness the mother of all vices. We know what the sin of Sodom was, right? Do you know in Ezekiel 16, in verse 49, Sodom's sin is said to originate in pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Our society is reaping the wicked fruit of pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. There is a direct correlation between the idleness of luxury and gross immorality. Believe grandpa when he says idle hands are the devil's workshop. When men aren't forced by the constraints of life to keep busy about good things, they will turn to evil things as surely as a moth turns to a flame. This story shows how a great chain of guilt can arise from an act which at first seems insignificant. Where did David's train wreck start? It starts with David engaging in sinful thoughts about his beautiful neighbor Bathsheba. Jesus says, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Had David nipped this temptation in the bud, he would have saved himself a world of agony. From his rooftop, he realizes that he can see into the neighbor's bathroom. David sees Bathsheba washing. I need to point this out. Verse 4 says, she was cleansed from her impurity. She was performing the ritual washing commanded in Leviticus for when a woman's period was over. Now, I want you to understand what this tells us. This tells us something about the nature of temptation. Temptation doesn't care about holy things. Nothing is off limits to temptation. Temptation arises from within our own hearts. That's why it's tempting. Scripture says that we're tempted when we're drawn away by our own lusts. Temptation arises in response to the sins to which we are prone, the ones our hearts especially love. When we encounter opportunities to engage in these acts, temptation arises. Sin isn't picky. Malcolm Muggridge tells how once when he was in India, walking along a, a river one evening, he spotted the silhouette of a bathing woman on the other side. Suddenly overcome by impure desires, he dove into the water, swam underneath, and emerged on the other side face to face with the naked woman. And what he saw gave him the shock of a lifetime. Before him was a wrinkled woman, deformed and toothless. Her eye sockets were eroded, her fingers were stumpy, her feet were deformed, her body was racked with leprosy. And he fled away immediately, frightened by the sight. And his instinctive thought was, what a horrid, repulsive creature. And then he realized, no, I'm the horrid, repulsive creature. She didn't entice me. I enticed me. My moral disfigurement is worse than her physical disfigurement. Bathsheba was engaged in a religious 
ritual. Do you follow me? David's sinful nature grabbed hold of that occasion. His sinful nature didn't say, hey, knock it off. She's performing a ritual, a religious ritual. Show some respect. Nope. It said, hey, there's a naked woman. I want to get me some of that. And I say that as crassly as I can to make the point that nothing is sacred to our sinful hearts. You know, in Exodus 20, there is a law about the altar that at first glance seems really weird. The altar is not supposed, was not supposed to have steps so that no one could look up the priest's robe. God knows that if some people were given the opportunity to look up the priest's robe, even while he was officiating at a sacrifice for sin, they'd do it. Nothing is so holy that it cannot be made an occasion of sin. David starts with a sinful look. Next, he's asking who she is. He finds out she's married, which should have ended it. But of course, lust doesn't care about trivial things like she's married. Moreover, she's married to a man that David should do anything to protect. Instead, David rifles the man's marriage bed, and that's only the first act of the tragedy. Next come all of his failed attempts to conceal the sin. David has Uriah called home from battle, hoping that he's homesick enough to go visit the wife, and, well, you know, this could cover David's tracks. And David finds himself frustrated by Uriah's most admirable character trait. Uriah has self-control. His brethren are sleeping on the ground in the open field. He will not go home to his wife's embrace. Even after David gets him drunk, he cannot be made a tool. There are a couple of people in the Bible who retain an ugly label that seems unfair. Rahab is one. She's Rahab the harlot all the way through the Bible. And the reason that the Bible retains that label is because she is a trophy of grace. Uriah is another. Uriah clearly loved God and his kingdom. His parents must have too, because they gave him what we would call a Christian name. Uriah means the flame of Jehovah. A pagan wouldn't give his son that name. So why is this at least second-generation convert still the Hittite? I believe the Bible calls him that in order to expose the shamefulness of David's sin. Hittites had not been favored with God's law. Yet this convert exhibits more self-control than David, who grew up in this faith. Now the act, which most people would consider an innocent glance has led to a fatal decision. Uriah has to be gotten rid of. David takes advantage of the war and connives to make Uriah's death look like an ordinary fortune of war. But David must involve someone else for this to be done, and he chooses Joab, his nephew. You know, you'd hope that Uncle David would set a better example, but sin doesn't care about honor and duty. David writes a letter telling Joab to put Uriah at the hottest part of the battle so that he'll be killed. It was bad enough to plot Uriah's death. But David had Uriah carry his own death warrant. Now initially, Joab could have been you know, naive about the whole ordeal. Wow, Uriah must have really done something totally out of character and angered David. 
But when word gets around that Uriah's wife is pregnant, yeah. Sin doesn't care about honor and duty. Has David forgotten how shocked he was when Joab killed Abner? Has he conveniently forgotten how worried he was that anyone might think that he approved of that murder? Many times David wished that Joab weren't so rough and ragged. Many times David wished that Joab were a more pious man with more concern about bloodshed. And now, here he is making Joab his confidant and partner in murder. Here he is making his own nephew believe that in spite of all of his holy pretensions, David is just like him. You know, there's often a great finality about sin. After this, David will never be able to convince Joab that he should be more devout, even though that's true. Will Joab think that murdering Abner was really a big deal when his own uncle David is rubbing out one of his most noble warriors after getting his wife pregnant? David's testimony as a man of God is forever ruined in Joab's eyes in spite of the genuineness of David's repentance. David can tell Joab, this was a great wickedness before the eyes of God, and I'm sorry that I drug you into it. But Joab is still going to think, yeah, whatever. Abner was actually an enemy who led Israel away from you. Uriah was a loyal soldier who risked his life for you, and this is how you repay him? Now, in closing, our text shows us the following dangers. First, the danger of neglecting, even briefly, the duty of private reading and prayer. Jesus said, watch, lest ye enter into temptation. It is to your own peril that you neglect daily communion with God. I cannot emphasize that enough. Haven't you noticed that it's life's evils and trials that drive you to God in the first place? When they're removed temporarily, are, are you to assume that you're safe? You ain't in heaven yet. Secondly, the danger of dallying with sin, even in the imagination, even in thought. If thought, if sin is allowed into the imagination, there is a real danger of it mastering the soul. There is no such thing as an innocent daydream. I know you don't believe that, but our text shows us otherwise. If you installed a special weasel door in your chicken house, one day you'll come in to find that what you have is a weasel house instead. They will take over. It is a serious moment when you admit a polluted thought into your heart and pursue it even in daydream. You have opened the door to danger because now everything that excites sensual feeling Songs, jokes, pictures, movies, they will all conspire and cooperate to enslave and pollute your soul until it is saturated with impurity and you cannot escape the bondage of the chains that you have forged. And finally, our narrative shows us how tolerating and gratifying even a single sinful desire will wreak great moral havoc and ruin. 
You may successfully repel 99 forms of sin, but if you yield to the 100th, the consequences will be deadly. You can throw away a whole box of matches, but if you keep one, that's still enough to burn your house down. One soldier can find his way into the garrison and open the gates to the whole invading army. One sin leads to another, and this is especially true and especially dangerous when the first sin is one that you would like to conceal. Our sinful hearts want to believe the lie. No one else has ever gotten away with this, but I will. You should never, never read 2 Samuel 11 without the deepest and most profound regard to the closing words. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. There is a whole world of meaning in that little word, but. Let us pray.